Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Misha Krudikov. Misha is professor and chair of the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures and Preston R. Tisch, professor of Judaic Studies at the Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He's the author of Yiddish Fiction and the Crisis of Modernity, 1905 to 1914, and from Kabbalah to Class Struggle, Expressionism, Marxism, and Yiddish Literature in the Life and Work of Meyer Wiener. His new book, Dear Nister's Soviet Years, The Yiddish Writer as Witness to the People, is forthcoming in 2019. He's been a cultural columnist for the Yiddish Forward since 1999, and a collection of his Yiddish essays came out in Israel in 2018 under the title Between Lines, Notes on Jewish Culture, as part of the Contemporary Yiddish Literature Series. Welcome, Misha. Welcome. Shalom Aleichem, Lisa. Thanks for uh, taking time to join me today. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. My pleasure. Um, and we're also looking forward to your upcoming weekend program about Dear Nister, which is the opportunity for me to ask you lots of questions today. So, of course, sure. <laughs> I'm going to confess that for me, Dear Nister is one of the lesser known of the Yiddish writers, and I'm intrigued to know more about him and his work. And a description of Dernister on our website reads, Dernister, the recluse, the literary pseudonym adapted by Pincus Kahanovich, was the most enigmatic figure in modern Yiddish literature. Let's start there by asking you to tell me a little bit more about the writer. Good. So uh, I think the key really is in his uh, pseudonym, in the name that he uh, cures for himself and the name that he became known under. And this is Dernister, which means in Hebrew, but also in Yiddish, um, a recluse or a hidden. And um, this is a special, I would say, technical term that is used in Hasidism for a tzaddik, uh, you know, the Hasidic Rebbe, who undergoes a certain process be- before he becomes Nigle or revealed, and everybody knows that he is the saint. Man, he is hidden, so he's a nister, and he is he lives an ordinary life. He um, travels and um, he does all kinds of very ordinary things, and he accumulates some sort of mystical strength. I'm not sure I'm describing it the way they would describe it. So when uh, this young man Binchas Kahanovich chose this pseudonym at the age of about 20, I think it was really a very ambitious thing to do, because obviously, you know, if you decide to call yourself a hidden one, then at some point you will reveal yourself, right? So uh, the other, there is another more mundane explanation of that uh, pseudonym is that uh, he was hiding from the military draft, and he was living under different names and he was really uh, keeping a very low profile. He was an ordinary teacher in provincial schools for girls teaching Hebrew, uh, very poor. And he was writing uh, strange, uh, symbolist, enigmatic stories, which had a lot of uh, symbols and metaphors that he borrowed from the tradition, from Hasidism, but also from romantic, European romantic literature. And there were no Jews, actually, in these stories as characters. There were very few human characters at all. There were mostly devils and witches and some strange characters that were traveling and um, looking for some hidden treasures. So he had a small circle of followers, 
So they really enjoyed the type of play with the symbols and images that they could decipher knowing some Kabbalistic literature. But obviously he was not a writer for masses, and he was not um, somebody whom you could easily approach, even personally. So he maintained that type of this all memoirs about him stress how uneasy he was, how he would never talk about what he was doing, what he was writing. So there was some kind of air of mystery around him. Uh, but he became very respected for his language, for his style, for his uh, very specific uh, type of writing that would be, you could recognize him by one, just by one sentence immediately. There was something very special about his command of literary Yiddish. And then he um, lived through the Civil War, the Russian Revolution, the Civil War. He worked in uh, a children's orphanage in Malachovka near Moscow for one year, where he met with Mark Chagall and close friends. There were some other important Yiddish writers and artists in that colony. And then he immigrated to Berlin, where again he lived in great poverty. He did some manual labor there, uh, but he also published volumes of his uh, symbolist stories, and he became known in the United States. Um, but again, he was a kind of special, unique writer for just for a small number of connoisseurs, really elitist. And then in 1926, he decided to go back to the Soviet Union, and um, it was an interesting choice at that time. He believed that there would be uh, more opportunities for him as a writer, that uh, he was also invited to new um, organization of Yiddish writers. He had his good friend Leib Kvitko, who was a, a big poet, a Yiddish poet also for children. But Kvitko uh, became one of the editors of a new literary journal in Kharkiv in Ukraine. At that time, it was the capital of Ukraine. And uh, this journal that was called the Welt, the Red World, published uh, the Nista's stories, which is really interesting how this very strange um, completely non-realistic stories, nothing to do with, you know, the Soviet Union, with uh, all these uh, socialist ideas, uh, actually pretty dark stories. How they were still published in the Soviet Union, and he even managed to publish two versions of these stories. And when you read them now, I read them now, and I, I keep wondering how, what, what is possible for these stories to be. But then in 1929, he was subjected to a very um, critical attack for all his decadent writing that had no place in new Soviet uh, literature. And that's actually when my story begins, because uh, up to that point, his, all his symbolism writing um, has been thoroughly analyzed, and there are a few books about him, so uh, some translations you can read it get a good sense of what it was written and some interpretations of these books. But then most of the scholars say that was the end of it, because then 1929 uh, he uh, became silent and he couldn't publish anything anymore in the Soviet Union, which actually is not quite true, because first he published translations into Yiddish. He translated from uh, Ukrainian, from Russian, from German. But uh, he also wrote uh, interesting um, new, very different in, in some new uh, stories. So I don't know even, it's difficult to describe them. Uh, there is no good English word to describe the genre. In Yiddish it's called but I think it's more like a 
reportage or probably a good equivalent would be a long read, something that you can read in, New, in the New Yorker magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were reportages from Soviet cities, from Kharkiv, from uh, Moscow, and from Leningrad. Um, and they were published as a book in 1934 uh, in Kharkiv. People paid no attention to them, and uh, there were very few reviews, and later historians just dismissed them as pieces of Soviet propaganda. But then if you read them carefully, you see that these are perhaps even more, they're even weirder, his symbolist stories, uh, because he starts with all this pretty boring uh, glorifications of the Soviet construction of socialism, but then he talks about uh, flying buildings, how uh, the government building in Kharkiv um, lifts and floats to Kiev and begins a conversation with the cathedral, the St. Sophia Cathedral in Kiev. And then he goes to Leningrad and he meets various ghosts. Others. He has conversations with Dostoevsky. And then he goes to Moscow and he tells us about a dream of the Kremlin wall. So it's an absolute surrealist writing it's that me. is just... <laughs> presented as a pure socialist, I don't know, propaganda. But it sounds like uh, you're in the middle of a Chagall painting and an Ansky Zadibic or something. <laughs> yes, and of course this is all stuff that he knew very, very well, much better than we do, because he grabbed with them, he knew those people, and uh, this was really part of his, uh, part of, of, of what he was doing until 1929, but to do it in 1934 in a completely different condition. And um, it's very, again, it's even more enigmatic than his uh, previous stories, because how are we supposed to read this? Uh, so this is trying something that I'm trying to kind of grapple with in my book and also at that uh, workshop in May. But uh, unfortunately, these texts are not translated. And uh, when you read them, you just keep reading the same. And say, are you serious? I mean, can you write this? What is it? Um, and then he also wrote children's poetry, which is also pretty weird, I would say, because some of these poems are really very cruel, um, and it not just evolve themselves, being killed. So there are many ways of reading this, but I don't think there isn't any, to me, any, you know, convincing, straightforward way of interpreting this. Did he, um, did he grow mm-hmm. up in a, um, a very Jewish home, a very Orthodox home? Oh, yes. He uh, grew, he, uh, yes, he grew in a very uh, Orthodox Hasidic home. Uh, one of his brothers was Bachelor uh, Hossed. He grew in Berdichev in the very center, you can tell, like, a car capital. You know, Berdichev was called you know, uh, Volinia. So uh, his knowledge of the Jewish tradition of the Kabbalah, of mysticism, of Hasidism, was really very, very profound, first-hand knowledge. And in his uh, symbolist writing, there is a lot of reference to the Book of Zohar, to um, all kinds of Jewish uh, learning. So he was one of the most learned uh, Yiddish writers. But interestingly, um, in um, in this writing, there isn't really anything overtly Yiddish, and it's a quite an idiomatic, uh, rich language. So, and then he began writing um, his novel that was, again, uh, something completely different from everything else, because that was his realist historical novel about a family, it's called the family Mashbeh, the Mishpocha Mashbeh, about uh, three brothers who live in Berdichev in uh, the 1860s, 1870s, 
And it's a historical novel with a lot of very interesting details. Uh, and it's also a philosophical novel with uh, some questions that are, I think, remind us of Dostoevsky. And he knew Russian literature very well, too, so he was uh, very well read. Uh, he also knew European literature. Uh, so that novel, Mishpocha Mazdar, came out in 1939. Uh, the first volume appears in 1939 in Moscow. And then the second volume uh, in edition appeared in 1941 in Vilnius that at that time became Soviet. It was also reprinted in New York. And it's also unique in a way that it was the book that was universally praised in the Soviet Union and in the United States, and in the Soviet Union and abroad. So it's it's a real masterpiece. And to my mind, it's the most interesting, the richest Yiddish historical novel there with many layers of meaning, with a very interesting um, symbolism embedded. So I spent quite a lot of time uh, reading and rereading it, and I prepared a Russian translation that was done by somebody who, uh, some time ago. So uh, it's a book that I've been living with for maybe 25 years. I, I was going to ask you if he was able to enjoy a large audience of readers, what critics, or, or even what other writers thought of his work? He was very well respected, I think, in the Soviet Union, but also in the United States. And that novel was very well received. Um, uh, he had a good friend from his uh, early Kiev days, he was Nachman Meisel, and he, mm, he moved to Warsaw from Kiev. He became one of the editors of the main Yiddish literary uh, weekly in Warsaw Literary Letter, and later he moved in. He became the editor of Yiddish Kultur, which was a left-wing uh, um, Yiddish uh, cultural magazine in New York. And Meisel uh, helped a great deal to publicize and to publish works of Soviet Yiddish writers. It was thanks to Meisel that the family Mashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbrahimashbr
and he wrote uh, a series of the Holocaust stories, which are among the earliest Holocaust stories because they were published in 1942 already. Of course, he didn't know what was happening exactly. He only heard some rumors, and he used his uh, imagination to, to try and describe what was going on in um, in those um, occupied So these stories are they actually translated into English, and they were published in the Soviet Union, uh, not all of them. And then towards the end of his life, in 1907, he got very enthusiastic about Birebitschan, about the Soviet of resettling Jews in the Far East, because he believed that that would somehow become a place where Jewish people and Jewish culture will be preserved and maybe re, um, there will be a revival. So he traveled to Birebitschan with a train, uh, with the whole um, transport of uh, uh refugees from, from the war in 1947, and he wrote about it, he glorified this whole project, but that partly because he was so enthusiastic uh, about this project, and he was, of course, the Secretary of Jewish Nationalism, so he was arrested in 1949, along with other members of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. But important as other people, like Sven Bergelson or Kvitko, who occupied high positions in the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, and that's why they were uh, arrested and later they were shot. Uh, he was only sentenced to 10 years in prison, but because he was an old and um, quite um, uh, Ill, sick man, so he, he didn't survive, he just died uh, in the labor camp uh, in Gulag uh, in 1950, about a year after his arrest. So that was the end of it. And... Uh, Bert Kotlevman, Professor Kotlevman from uh, Bagalan University, traveled to that place in Russian far north, and he found actually he found his grave, Daniel's grave. Hmm. Uh, and, yeah. Would it be a fair question to ask you where do you think he fits into the literary, the Yiddish literary landscape and canon? He fits into several very different places. Interestingly, of course, he fits his major. I think is the family uh, Mashber, the novel. So it would sit along uh, Bashevis and I.J. Singer and Shalom Ash and uh, Schnell Zalman, all uh, novelists of the interwar period. Um, his uh, symbolist work is definitely part of Yiddish avant-garde and modernism. And then he is also part of the Holocaust literature, even though he, wherever you try to place him, you will see how is how really strange his writing is compared to other people's writing. Also, children's literature, I, see, I find his children's poetry, and he published three books for children in the mm -hmm. Soviet Union, is also quite interesting, even though I don't know if it's suitable for children, because it's so dark. <laughs> but then there's a, there's a tradition of children's literature being written in, in a dark way, so that parents can take something away when they're reading it to their children, I think. <laughs> Disney certainly Maybe, has yes, dark literature, yes. yeah. I would be really interested to see, because this is also not really well known, this his, uh, uh, his children's poetry. And I think, frankly, that he was just doing this for money in the 30s because he needed it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, last quick question for you. How did you find your way to him? Um, you know, I worked uh, in the Soviet Yiddish magazine, Soviet Heimland, in 1989, and it had a very good library, and then I began reading these books. So I came across his book, his novel, was very much impressed 
the first chapter is amazing. Uh, we will read it. And this uh, workshop, it's a, a description of the city of Gildicher. And then uh, I actually learned that his widow was still alive, and I tried to make contact with her, but I failed. And then I worked a little bit with his um, archives in uh, Russia, in the State Archives of Literature. And so I got an idea of what's available and what can be done about him, but it took me almost 30 years, you know, to have this work finished. Well, it, it sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to going to your um the program again for our listeners. Uh, the program is between fantasy and reality. The writings of Dear Nister, uh, and it takes place here at the Yiddish Book Center, May third through fifth, and it includes lectures, it includes uh, film meals, plenty of discussion, and will make for a wonderful weekend. If you are listening and are interested in learning more, you'll find some information at yiddishbookcenter.org/backslash/weekend-dash program. Uh, you do need to register, and it is for the entirety of the weekend. So thank you again for taking time to join me today and uh, for, again, opening up what I think will be quite an interesting series of lectures. Thank you. Thanks, and we look forward to welcoming you to the center. Take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Sarah Bleichfeld, Visitor Services and Public Programs Manager here at the Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, please visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 84, Aaron Lansky's August 2014 conversation with Devin Narr about the origins of the Ladino language and his work collecting Ladino books. Until next time, be well and be healthy. Bye, Gesundheit!